With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. In the recent versions of South Beach Sessions, we've been talking to my friends about really vulnerable things. And I cannot say that Tommy Vitor is my friend. I can say that I have admired his story from afar because it seems crazy to me. Some of the stuff that he's done and the business venture that he has now embarked on, which is wildly successful, but probably comes with some trapdoors that he never expected and the audience has no idea about. So just a brief synopsis. In his past life, he worked for President Obama for nine years, including as White House National Security Spokesman. He is now the co-host of Pod Save America and the host of Pod Save the World, the weekly no-bullshit conversation that breaks down international news and foreign policy developments. And it's not boring. It doesn't. This is hard subject matter, and they make it fun to learn with them, and he makes it fun to learn. He also has, you know, basically started the crooked media empire that he co-founded with his friends. And so, Tommy, thank you. You can listen to subscribe to pod save the world new episodes every wednesday and pod save america with new episodes tuesday and thursday wherever you get your podcast uh thank you for joining us we've uh we've never spoken uh but your story seems crazy so let's just start with what do you think is the craziest part of your story (laughs) dan thank you so much for that very nice intro and for having me on the show i've been in kind of a defensive crouch all morning as a, a Boston sports fan, I thought this was just going to be a Celtics roast, a Bruins roast, whatever you wanted it to be. But you know, if you if you would want to skip over that part, just beating me well, down. We can make fun of getting... Bill. We can make fun of Bill Simmons later if you want to. We okay. can do that together. We could just use him as the symbol and avatar for making fun of all things Boston sports. Uh, okay, pain because you come from that tree. I'm super curious as to how all of that happened. But just before we get to that, what do you view as the craziest parts of your story? your journey uh the white house the white house i i mean i think so much uh of life and my you know career has been luck and timing and basically i I graduated from college in 2002 i interned for ted kennedy for a while uh on capitol hill and i desperately wanted to get a job in his office to sort of like the front desk guy you know fetching coffee for people like whatever it might be and i didn't get hired uh and i was completely devastated but not getting that job led me to campaigns and to work for President Obama on his uh, then Senate campaign in 2004. And that little piece of luck uh, led all the way to the White House in sort of a completely improbable journey. Okay, luck, but also you view it as, oh my God, they're going to pay me to just spend all this time <laughs> learning about like secrets of how the world <laughs> runs? Like they're going to pay me to just learn. Yeah, that is what it was. I mean, we so... Uh, the first two years in the White House, I was a spokesman and a bunch of sort of general issues. The second two years, I was the National Security Council spokesman, which meant I handled foreign policy, national security, uh, things of that nature. Um, and, you know, came associated with that comes a top secret clearance and the ability to um, go to really interesting meetings, uh, talk to really brilliant people that work in all parts of the government, the intelligence world, the Defense Department, State Department, and help them. Uh, or ask them to explain things to me so that I could explain them to journalists and help people understand, you know, what Obama was doing when he went to 
Turkey or something like that. So were yeah, you, it was a hell of a job. But were you being aspirational or ambitious here with career goals in mind, or were you just, uh, no, I want to learn. This is going to be fun to learn. I think, you know, I was thinking about this today because I, you know, think about some of the questions for the show. Uh, <laughs> thank God we were so young and and stupid and almost didn't realize how much we didn't know. Like, And when I say we, I mean uh, the people I worked with on that campaign, because when you go from a political campaign to an administration, um, in a sense, you're prepared for it because you've been working you know 100 hour weeks and you know you know Barack Obama's record inside and out and you have dealt with the press but you're never actually prepared for the problems that you're going to face once you get into an administration um you know thinking about things like the Fukushima nuclear meltdown that happened in 2011 i mean there's no preparing yourself or preparing a government to you know go into a meeting where someone says hey this nuclear reactor in japan uh, is melting down, uh, and we might have a Chernobyl-like event if the following things don't happen. So it wasn't ambition. It wasn't um, anything about my personal career track. It was sort of something that felt fun and exciting, and there was a, a team of people doing it together and a shared mission and a shared goal and a really inspiring leader, and that just made it fun and rewarding. But how far are you now from whatever it is you were dreaming you were going to be? I mean... In a sense, uh, just a completely different place. You know, I mean, I, I, when I left the White House in 2013, I thought to myself, uh, I've been on this, um, you know, Ferris wheel, this merry-go-round for about nine years working for Obama. I've been in politics for a little bit longer. It's time to step off. It's time to do something else with my life, get away from politics, you know, move on from that, get out of D.C. And I tried. I did it for a couple of years, but it didn't stick uh, because here I am, you know, 2023, still talking about Joe Biden's record, still talking about Donald Trump, still sort of focused and obsessing about politics oh, no. every day. Yeah, but but and also running a, a media empire with your friends, which is a totally different. It's a totally different thing than. I mean, I don't even know where your primary concerns are. But yes, I've focused on the things in sports that I focus on. And then I look up one day and I'm managing 50 people or I've got 50 employees or whatever it is. You, you have a your story is parallel here where I yeah. don't think that you ever imagined that. Did you? No, not not at all. And well, I'd love to know what the experience has been like for you. But it started with three of us. Then there were six and then there were 20 and then there were 50. And then all of a sudden we realized, uh, Management's a full-time job, and there are people that are really, really good at it, and there's people who are less good at it. And I think, uh, I don't know if the three of us would have been really, really good at it if it's been in the entire focus or not, probably not. But uh, when you're recording a couple shows a week and you're touring and you're you know, focused on all the political things we want to focus on, uh, we realized we needed to bring in some folks who um, could manage the place full time. So, you know, we had a COO who really focused on the operations, the nuts and bolts of the place. And then recently we hired a CEO that's fully running the place and letting us, uh, John, John and I be more focused on recording shows. But I'm not sure how, you know, how did you guys manage things from sort of no employees to to many? With me after shows, very often walking into rooms, sitting in a chair, being close to sobbing and saying, I don't know how to lead. <laughs> I know that feeling. I, I know that feeling, too. I mean, or someone uh, I was talking to 
a friend, this guy, Ben Smith, who, who ran Buzzfeed news for a while, uh, and then started a company called semaphore, which is another media company now. And he said, the thing about having more than 50 people on staff is every week, somebody is having the worst week of their year. Uh, and that sort of bleeds through into everything in your life, whether it's you or somebody on your team and you have to figure out how to help them or account for that or make things work despite of, despite what everyone's going through. So yeah, that it's been an enormous challenge. It's a full-time job. Our CEO, John Skipper, who used to be the most powerful man in sports, says it's a hell of a lot easier managing 10,000 people than it is managing 40 people because of what you just said. Because if you're going to build a company that actually cares, that has a soul, and I want to talk to you about this because you found a unique space in the media landscape uh mm -hmm. A really unusual place where you can be vulnerable and you can be the other side to what seems to be having more success, which is right-wing stuff that's getting traction and you're out here fighting a different kind of fight on the other side with facts and nuance and real expertise but i along the path have felt really lost and i don't know if you'd never considered the idea of running like when you're working for Bill Simmons, it just seems like a magical job, right? You're just allowed to talk into a microphone and just show off your expertise. You go home and you're done with your work day. It's, it's much easier than anything you've been doing before and probably more fun since you're doing it with your friends. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, I mean, the, what happened with Bill was uh, John Favreau, who is uh, one of my co-founders here, went to Holy Cross where Bill Simmons went to college as well. So they like got linked up many years ago, became friends, being friendly. John moved out to LA. And Bill said, you know, what, what if you and one of your buddies came in and, you know, did a podcast about politics running up to the 2016 election? So uh, John and Dan Pfeiffer and then uh, John Lovett and I started doing a show called Keeping It 1600 a couple of days a week. And it was a really fun hobby, uh, but it was part time. I was still living in San Francisco at the time. I would just sort of Skype into these calls. Um, but slowly the, uh, the show's audience really began to grow and grow and grow. And then when the election happened and everything we thought was going to transpire did not, Hillary Clinton didn't win, Donald Trump won states like Pennsylvania that Democrats thought were impossible to lose. Um, we all felt this enormous sense of guilt and feeling like, um, you know, the things we cared about were too important to let them be a hobby uh, and that we needed to go all in and, and do this full time. And that's where Crooked Media was sort of born. If Hillary Clinton wins, none of this exists? Probably not. I mean, it's it's a great question. I think about it all the time. Um, maybe we would have decided that there was still a place uh, for a different kind of conversation about politics. We might have, but I don't know that we would have done it with the same urgency that led us to start Crooked Media right away to you know launch the shows in, in early 2017 for me to convince my now wife to pick up and, and move from San Francisco to Los Angeles, I think that would have been a little bit tougher. Well, tell me some of this, right? Tell me about the sacrifices that people don't see when you're taking over a hobby, making it a job with your friends, but now comes also the pressure of... Uh, we're going to be activists here with facts that inform people, and we're going to believe that uh, there will be nutrients that people will buy, and we will be able to create an economy that actually is a fighting machine. Because, And it's going to try and fight with facts. Yeah, I mean, so 
There's definitely a, a recipe in sort of right-wing talk radio that you guys have watched forever from Rush Limbaugh to some of the, the you know Crowder folks who are on now that's very angry and divisive and you know you, you, lots of uh, demagoguing groups especially LGBT people people of color right I mean you see this all the time um, the, that recipe does not work on the left I'm glad it doesn't um, I think the more progressive side is motivated by things being funny uh, inspiration, uh, a more fact-based conversation. So that's what we wanted Crooked Media to be. We wanted to be a place where you could talk about politics that didn't feel like cable news, where it was like these stilted debates and the same talking points and the same people in these green rooms over and over again. Uh, there was a little more entertaining. There was a little deeper dives on the issues people cared about. But then if we were talking about something you really cared about, uh, and you wanted to do something about it. We wanted to be the place that could help you figure out how. Uh, and there's no magic bullet. You know, there's no easy answer when it comes to like solving some problem or, you know, making sure that our democracy is protected. It's sort of a day by day process of citizenship and voting and volunteering and donating. But we wanted to create that infrastructure to make it easy for people and also to make them not feel hopeless because I think um, the kind of demagogues win when people feel like eh, politics is a waste of time all these politicians are the same what's the point of even trying you know like that's that i think is the worst thing that can happen to people like me who think that government can be good and help people when done right but if you're in a dirty fight in a corrupt fight if you're in an ugly fight where the other side isn't fighting fair and you come to the fight with funny and inspiration you lose those fights. Like, that's why what you're doing is tricky. Uh, it's why I admire that you, I mean, the downloads that you have are crazy. You have found an audience that, not unlike you, who chose the White House because you wanted to learn. Because I don't want to skip past this part. Uh, mm -hmm. I, think it's, I think it's important. If you don't have political ambitious, ambition and climbing that is now corrupting and contaminating all of government, and you were just in government m more, I shouldn't say just, but to learn, you take your ego and the ambition out of it, you got out of government what you needed, which is an expertise, and you listened. You weren't, you weren't so interested in climbing or showing others what you knew that you had the foremost experts in the world giving you free information all the time that you now use to have a thoroughly expert podcast thank you i mean that, that one of the coolest things about getting to work on the national security side of um the white house is there is this little team of people called the national security council and for under us i think it was up to like 500 people who were on that staff almost all of them very few of them were direct hires a lot of them were um, detailed over from agencies. So the CIA would send somebody over, Defense Department, the State Department. A lot of those people were career foreign service officers, career intelligence officers, you know, people who are uh, in the side of politics or in the part of government that is not political. And so I never knew their partisan leanings. You know what I mean? I just knew that there was this really funny guy from the CIA who was in meetings with me a lot and would help me out um, when I needed answers about what was going on in Syria, for example. So it was just a really amazing window into government and sort of like the selflessness of the people that serve in it um, and aren't known, you know, don't make a lot of money. A lot of them have to deploy overseas to, to scary places sometimes um, and don't get to see their families, but are really, you know, they're in it for the right reasons. So I saw like a much better side of government than you see on, you know, Fox News or a cable TV show or what have you.
My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com Beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. How much corruption did you see? How much overt hopelessness did you see at being able to do activism in government that wouldn't be contaminated by the self-interests? Um, I think the corruption you see is not necessarily stuff that's illegal. It is the unbelievably broken campaign finance system like you guys in florida right you you have ron desantis who uh just recently changed a rule a state rule about how uh, political action committees are governed or or what their rules are that will allow him to transfer 80 million dollars to his presidential campaign he just gets to tweak a rule to change that. I mean, that is that makes no sense. The the amounts of money that you can raise uh, from PACs and from lobbyists, um, the impact that has on our politics. I mean, that was the stuff you see day to day that can be pretty, pretty demoralizing. Are you frightened by how heartless, how soulless so many of the people around you in politics were or are? I don't think I was frightened. I mean, I think you see the system is sort of set up for really ambitious people to fight each other all the time and to provide checks and balances i mean that's sort of like the brilliance of the of the founding structure of the government and the documents so um that part i don't know that that should make anyone feel better but that is sort of the system we inherited i think (laughs) what is gross is some of the individuals you come across like you know again i don't mean to pick on florida but you know talking to you so but like matt gates uh People like that who seem to have absolutely no kind of anchor when it comes to what he believes in. Um, it's just sort of constant drifting in the wind. I mean, that was the stuff that that bothered me and that shocked me and that, you know, can make you feel like, I don't know why people are doing this. For the uninitiated, can you tell me how uh, the origins of the name Crooked Media? <laughs> you know, Trump said it. He would always complain about the Crooked Media. And we thought it was funny if we took it back uh and and just owned it and made it our name because i think i think the the frustration people have with media is um there's sort of your your conservative outlets your more progressive ones and then the ones that uh, are supposed to shoot straight and you know just be just the facts like a cnn and um there are it's sort of a broken concept of media in my opinion like the idea that reporters don't have biases i think we all bring experiences our identities uh biases to the table and we wanted just to be overt about them you know i mean we are 
liberal people that worked in the Obama administration trying to talk about politics in the most honest way we can. That comes from a perspective. Um, you can call it crooked if you want. We, we think that's kind of funny and that's okay. You mentioned your wife and asking her about a pretty substantive life decision. I know, I just know, I wouldn't have done any of this. I wouldn't have left ESPN. I wouldn't have left Comfort. I certainly wouldn't have started a business if I did not have this undying ride or die support at home uh, for the days when I come home on my hands and knees. So explain to me what your wife, who loves you, warned you about working with your friends and taking on a venture that now has an enormous amount of responsibility on top of it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess what you're, you know, when I told my wife, you know, so I left the White House, my friend John Favreau and I, we started a company that did a lot of speech writing and kind of like communications consulting work. It was, it was a good job. We did pretty well. Uh, I liked a lot of people I met, but I wasn't totally fulfilled. Then we started doing the Keeping a 1600 podcast on the side. That was fun. It made me realize that I wasn't escaping politics, that I was still obsessed with it. And then when the election happened, I went to her and I said, you know, Hannah, we want to start a company, make this a full-time job um, and and give it a go. And I think, <laughs> understandably, she was sort of like, do you really think podcasting is a full-time job? Which, you know, in 2017, <laughs> I think most people probably had that reaction. My, my in-laws, my parents, a lot of my friends. I mean, I don't know if you encountered sort of the same the same response i mean i did i did with with my family it wasn't podcasting it was a million years ago but it, the idea of writing sports and making any money for a living uh when your parents are exiles who fled to find freedom and my father wanted me to be an engineer uh yeah he didn't talk to me for a long time because he uh really oh, i mean i might as well have said you know what i want to do i want to be the lead singer of a rock band and do just <laughs> a bunch of heroin and uh and also they're not going to pay me anything for it uh that cool with you uh Dad? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. but but uh, but it's not as ridiculous. Your wife knows you, and this is why I say I couldn't have done this without uh, my wife. Just couldn't have done it. She saw the ways that I was not fulfilled, and she wanted to push me toward happy, to challenging myself, but something that was more rewarding, more fulfilling. While a lot of people also warn you, by the way, and I'm sure you got this: be careful about working with your family and friends because it might cost you your family and friends. I have a friend who did that, and it he made a lot of money made a ton of money and it cost him all the friendships before he was 30 years old uh, because that navigation can be very hard. I don't know how you've navigated it. I don't know how we navigate it either because we, we're not just business partners, but we also share the microphone a couple of days a week on shows. Uh, I think maybe the answer is, you know, every once in a while you just have to scream at each other and, and fight it out and then then move on and get over it like a sibling. I do think we're it's, it's more like brothers than... Uh, than friends or business partners at this point. What are the challenges you weren't expecting? Uh, honestly, I think the challenges we weren't expecting were um, how hard management is, how much focus it takes, um, how much time, how much empathy and understanding, and uh, how ill-prepared I think I was coming out of politics to do a lot of those things because my job was usually as a spokesperson. You know, I went out to Iowa. I lived there for a year and ran the Iowa press operation for Barack Obama. I, I was the press secretary. Uh, another friend of mine, Josh Ernest, who was later the White House press secretary, was a communications director. Um, after that, they were like, uh, you're doing rapid response in the White House. I handled a bucket of issues, which is a, a long winded way of saying my job was like 
here's a task, go sit at your desk for 12 hours and do it, you know? Um, and I didn't rely on, uh, managing a lot of people or working with folks. I just sort of like did my thing and going from a place where you are focused like that and focus on one task every day to, um, trying to oversee something bigger is really, really hard. How lonely was the job? And forgive, I don't know you this way because I shouldn't be asking this question probably, but how much did it test at your marriage that you were doing what sounds like a bit of a lonely job? And furthermore, your wife is saying, you don't seem fulfilled. Well, so I met Hannah in, in 2012. Uh, so we were together for about a year and a half while I was at the White House. Um, her, she was definitely one of the reasons I wanted to leave when I did, which is in March of 2013, because I knew that um, I couldn't focus on on her and our relationship as much as I wanted to if I was, you know, in this this full time job. So it, it wasn't lonely in that um, we had a team of people and it was kind of ragtag that all did the campaign together and then went into the administration. So we really did have that kind of like band of brothers like group of friends sort of shared misery shared triumphs together uh that kept you sane um but there were definitely days where you're you know you're there after a really long day or you know, it's a late friday night or saturday morning or something like that and you're still at the office and you're just like this sucks why, oh why but yeah but what you're talking about there though the um, the emotional bandwidth that you're giving you're saying yeah triumph and you you and the feet of the job and hooray and this is so invigorating but what do you got when you get home because you're not going to have a whole lot left in the tank if that's what you're giving your job like it's hard to it i mean i don't i keep telling i have spent two years telling our employees get me home to my wife please get me home to my wife i want to be there because it's so hard to do both yeah and listen it, it recently i realized how hard it was because we uh we just had a baby she's almost six months old and if i don't get home before six i don't see her that night you know because she goes to bed at like six six fifteen or six thirty so that's become a real pull uh that has that gets me the hell out of here um, and makes me think back to all the people I worked with at the White House who uh, had kids at home at the time and, and, you know, were stuck late day after day after day and just never saw them. I just can't imagine doing that job now. How did Hannah know that you were not fulfilled? And what are the differences in you now? Because it sounds like you've got like it sounds like this is the happy lane. Yeah, this is definitely the happy lane. I mean, I think Hannah knew. So we we're living. We moved from D.C. to San Francisco. Uh, I was doing this consulting job with. John Favreau and a couple other folks. Um, but I was doing it remotely from San Francisco. So I was just working from my house and she would leave and go to work and come back. And I would just sort of still be there. <laughs> and I hadn't, hadn't really had any human contact all day. And that just did not work for me. Uh, I am a person, I'm a social animal. I need to see people. I need like water cooler talk, just something, some sort of distraction and being home alone all by myself in our apartment for a couple of years broke my brain. Uh, and so I think she knew that, yes, I desperately wanted to try to create this media company to fix the way politics is talked about in the country, but also I needed to get the hell out of the house to be around people again and do something like that had a team element because I just missed that so much. Hannah did not marry a puppy. 
that was like not that is not something that she married she married somebody who has a puppy who has to interact with other puppies it's so funny you say that because she would literally she, she would come to the door after work and come home and i would greet her at the door and she'd be like you greet me like you're a puppy <laughs> like you gotta get out of the house man <laughs> uh but you've been doing hard and noble and admirable work so how much fear was there for you in the transition as you're looking for support on something more fulfilling i mean i you know we just figured we went from having a show that had gained some popularity during a crazy election to restarting everything you know so your subscriber count goes down to zero um you have no idea if people are going to want to listen to this show again now that donald trump is actually president so there was a lot of fear like will people tune back in well do people still care after this election happened or are they going to give up and tune out so there was a lot of that um and then there's just a constant imposter syndrome like why the hell would anyone listen to us when there's a million other options out there you know that that's a day-to-day -day thing so why make the bet make the bet because um deeply felt guilt about having been so dedicated to politics and then pulling myself out uh, at a moment when it felt like um, I should have stayed in and feeling like the conversation about politics in the 2016 election was as bad as it had ever been because all people cared about was the horse race and the games and they didn't talk about the stakes and the impact on people's lives and why it mattered uh, and how we all need to get involved. And we wanted to try to um, move the needle on that conversation and make it a little better. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Was progress for you in terms of putting down fear and doubt and getting confidence linear? Or were there many times early on where it wasn't what you are now, which is clearly a radiant human being doing exactly what he wishes to be doing with his life and fighting this fight the way he wishes to be fighting it? I mean, I swear to you, I, I, I'm not joking when I say this. Every time we do like a live show or a podcast and we walk out onto the little stage thing, I'm sort of like waiting for there to be no one there. <laughs> you know, that's just a constant imposter syndrome, uh, wondering when the audience is just going to go away. I think part of that is just uh, anxiety, but part of that is, I don't know, maybe a, a healthy fear that keeps you hungry. I don't know. What about you? You guys, like you're, the, the media industry, especially for sports, is changing constantly the big players uh get pushed around a little bit i mean like how do you guys deal with that there's there's upstarts there's barstool there's espn i mean there's just like competition everywhere yeah i'm not competitive that way so that's not where regret or doubt would seep in it's on the hardest days when i feel like managing of people is hard and i never never envisioned myself as any kind of manager of people i've always been responsible it's just self-sufficiency me the microphone yeah. do what it is that you do you don't have to like it'll it'll take care of itself your worry of others the economy around this fun thing will take care of itself but i had reached a point at espn where i couldn't keep 
eating silence when I'm freedom first, voice first, and I'm too much about I've got to be able to speak freely. And so the muzzling was a different kind of unfulfilling. It was too much of a sacrifice of of principle principles that I couldn't abide. I couldn't I couldn't look myself in the mirror if I was living in a space where I had to sell out that obviously like sell out in a way that I couldn't come up with a rationalization when I was looking in the mirror for what my family's about and and so I just I had to do it and then it came with when the discomfort arrived what it felt like was just unsafe because I'm it's not regret but it's just like oh my god I could have been cashing checks talking into a microphone for millions of dollars if I had just kept my head down but not been able to live with myself yeah. Do you think the ESPN brass regrets trying to muzzle people? It's so much more interesting when you don't muzzle people. No. At Disney. <laughs> that, was, uh. that was a question. I just don't think I don't think that they want the headline. Why would they want the headlines around a sports program of yeah. sports host goes after Trump? Like, what do they need that for? It's it's a little bit easier to just hire Pat McAfee, give him 17 million dollars a year, and he's probably not going to do that. Yeah. All right. That's fair. But I mean, I don't know. It seems like there's some really interesting people like saying their thing, you know, like the, the whole stick to sports, shut up and dribble uh, LeBron get out of politics. Like, I don't know that that worked too well for his critics. You tell me what value people in sports have for all of this stuff, because I've found that it's safer and more rewarding generally to just stick to sports. You won't lose sponsors. Like, I'm not saying that that's what anybody should do, but if you just stick to sports, you're not going to, man, I don't want to be trusting Bud Light from my moral compass. Like, I don't want to have to worry about what they're dealing with in their meetings so that I can say this or not say that. Like, I, how much politics do you see with your sports? You know, it's hit or miss. You're right. Listen, obviously, just from a purely financial standpoint, uh, you can probably identify a few topics that if you never touch, no one will criticize you. Um, I do think there are people that get involved um, in in politics and sports, like the Rooney family, uh, that I think have done really well by themselves by seeing sort of like principled leaders in a couple of different areas. Um, but, you know, I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's certainly more complicated. And the Roonies are foremost leaders on racial matters. This is the funny part about what it is that you're saying. I don't even think that I talk politics. What I've been talking about for many, many years has been race and it gets hijacked. It gets turned yeah. into politics when all I feel like I'm doing, and I'm I'm now viewed, I'm called libtard and woke. The Cuban community will call me gusano worm for being a traitor against the politics of my region here in South Florida. But all I think I've ever advocated for, which is now a, somehow a controversial position, is how about equality and decency for all? Like, that's, that's why I'm politically, I mean, I'm guessing many people who are on the other side of this are saying, no, you're an asshole, you're obnoxious, you're strident, and you're, you're way, way left wing. But I believe I'm only somebody who says, can we be decent to everybody? I don't even care about politics. Yeah. Well, and what, what you're saying is essentially what a lot of athletes were saying who are, who are silenced or shut down or told to stop kneeling, which is they were more specifically saying, hey, we want to prevent uh, police brutality against black people. 
And that was twisted as sort of a political statement and people were told they were being woke or to stick to sports or, or whatever it might be, when really it was just about equal treatment of everybody. I'm so disappointed, though, Tommy, that that works somehow. Like one of the things I was always saying to myself, uh, I think I said it publicly. I know I was saying it to myself privately. If you're a corporation that has as much money as X, whomever it is, if you have FU money, why would you never say FU? Why would you never choose a side and say FU? Because you got to make more FU money to never say FU? Yeah. No, I would. I mean, I think Bud Light, you mentioned Bud Light earlier. I mean, they're they they basically sent uh, one like specialized beer can to uh, an influencer who is transgender, a, a person who just lives her life on her social media. And it was just a nice little thing. And all of a sudden you have Chris Rock. I'm sorry, not Chris Rock. You have Kid Rock uh, shooting a machine gun at a bunch of beer cans. When this same sort of group of people two years ago were complaining about cancel culture and freedom of speech and silencing people, it's like, I I do think like to your point, um, it's important when corporations cave like that and when they are getting attacked in these cynical ways to sort of call out what's happening here uh, and I don't know, and just stand for your principles. It's not that hard. Where have you been tested since going closer to the fear and fulfillment? Where have you been most tested? I mean, I think what was challenging was, you know, when you worked, I worked for Obama for nine years and uh, over time, like his opinions became my opinions, you know, for not consciously, but, uh, you know, you become kind of like of an administration. You feel like you own part of it. It's a collective group of people doing these things um and then you leave government and for a while it took me uh, it took me a little while to like kind of deprogram myself and get out of talking points mode and getting out of being defensive of everything he did and to think for myself and to speak for myself um that's scary it's it's a lot less scary when you have some air cover from you know the president of the united states uh to help you defend your thinking um it's a lot harder when you're just kind of deciding on your own it's scary, but it's also growth, right? Yeah, absolutely. It it and it it's ultimately a lot more rewarding and freeing to feel like you can just kind of weigh in on whatever you want, including talking about things where we screwed up and made mistakes. I'm fascinated by where growth can be found for a whole lot of people that I've seen have success when they go toward the scary, when the deprogramming of that, things I've always believed, things that are my identity politics, things that are my ego, I'm going to go ahead and walk toward the fear. Um, Man, there has been real learning in that for me, but it's so easy to say, and I don't think people who... I don't think it's normal to seek necessarily change that requires you to reprogram your whole system. Ten years you dedicated. I'm I'm assuming if it's 100 hours a week that you basically were getting all of your ego and identity at work. Absolutely. 100%. All of it. Uh, and it just becomes who you are. It becomes your identity in a lot of ways. You're, you're you know, Obama guy. You work for him. You're part of this administration. Um Can I ask you about something you said a minute ago, which was you said you've been taking a lot of flack from the Cuban community in Florida. Is that over like specific 
Cuba specific U.S. policy stuff, or is that more generally? Oh, like, where's that? No, come it's from? just the history. I mean, Cubans are Republican, and so they somehow look at Trump and DeSantis and see the opposite of what I'm looking at as someone who is broken free from all that programming you're talking about. And they think I'm a bad Cuban voice because you know what the politics of Miami are, right? You know what the yeah. politics of Florida are, where DeSantis is someone who's supported. I'm surrounded by people who think I am not only wrong, but Gusano is a specific term. It's a term going back to the revolution in Cuba. Worm is the worst thing you can be if you're someone on the other side of this somehow. And I don't get this from my people. I don't understand it. I've had I've lost friends. It's been heartbreaking the last few years of what this has been. Just not understanding how people look at Trump and DeSantis and see decency there. Like just decency. I'm not even talking about anything else. Just decency. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's. You know, it's funny. One of the biggest one of the things I was proudest of with Obama was his ability to kind of break with orthodoxy and specifically on Cuba when they tried to restore relations, get the embassies back up and going, like sort of begin to chip away at the embargo. But then I noticed that some of those policy moves were just wildly unpopular. They never grew in popularity over time. They, they only got worse. Um, and I always want, wondered why that was and if that was about what Obama did specifically or if that was more about his identity and just sort of a fun, fundamental rejection of the Democratic Party versus like the things he tried to do. No, it was both, though. It was a lack of understanding of how hostily offensive it would be to normalize relations with a country that was still being run by the version of our Hitler. I always get in trouble when I say that, but Cuban people in Miami think of the Castro regime and Cuba as mm -hmm. a relationship that cannot be normalized, should not mm -hmm. be normalized, even if it punishes the people of Cuba, which is not something that I would agree with, but I understand how they arrive historically passed down through generations at that opinion. I, I remember my mother, uh, she asked me, she was trying to express her feelings on Facebook, and she asked me to help her with the writing of it, and I remember uh, that uh, that information somehow, however I wrote that through Tony Kornheiser, who I guess golfed with Obama, ended up being a part of however he tried to cross that bridge. But you still don't understand in retrospect how it is that you guys lost Cubans on Cuba, even though I can look at that and say, what's wrong with normalizing relations? The people of Cuba don't deserve an antiquated form of government that has choked the the embargo has choked that country. They don't have it. They're stuck in the 1950s. Like I could. I could want normalized relations there, but you guys didn't understand why my people wouldn't want normalized relations there. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying uh, over time, those those policy changes went from sort of whatever they were to like 25% worse in terms of approval. And I sort of had always hoped that, you know, the the travel, the remittances, the, the person to per person contact between uh, people in Miami, say, or in Cuba, might over time make people happier it might help them understand that you know the cuban people were benefiting and it wasn't necessarily about the castros but i'm obviously not looking at this from the sort of identity standpoint that your parents are or with that deep history of, of understandable hatred toward the castros i'm truly stunned to hear you sound naive i mean you know well listen I, I'm, I'm saying this as somebody who's trying to like learn from a policy change that I just hope would uh, would reach a younger generation of Cubans, even if their parents hated it.
you know? And sometimes things start out unpopular and they get more popular, but this went the exact opposite. For now, I suppose, right? Because I do think that all of this stuff changes with young people. If you can reach young people, I believe that the greatest hope for America, that I, when I don't see a whole lot of hope for what it is that's happening around us in terms of division and attacks on democracy and facts, the greatest hope everyone articulates is, well, kids think differently. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you have any hope for uh, the Democratic Party in Florida <laughs> or are we uh, I mean, still doing the wrong thing? I mean, why would I why would I have any hope for that? I mean, DeSantis, uh, no, uh. no, no state I have seen recently. This is crazy, Tommy, to see what's happened uh, mm -hmm. here in South Florida. I saw Memorial Day. It has been an ethnic celebration, a hip hop celebration along Ocean Drive for 10 years mm -hmm. that has uh, created a lot of fear and angst and police present and i just saw it overrun by air and sea show and so much military presence that they have turned it into something entirely different that has run tourism out of florida and tourism out of the south of florida because of just how much fear there is of the other throughout florida mm -hmm. and it is such an effective uh, disappointing but effective political technique to just throw fear out there of other people blame others for what it is that are that is happening and next thing you know uh cries for equality sound like threats because you don't want to hear them from black or brown or asian or women they just sound like threats to a white power structure yeah and uh you've got some uh some politicians down in florida who are very good at uh, singing those notes and, and those dog whistles and appealing to that kind of populist uh right-wing sort of fear-mongering but how does it work it always works it we're doomed to always lose to that i don't think we're doomed to always lose to that i think it ebbs and flows i think that uh when i look around the world you know the the 2008 financial crisis hit everybody hard but hit some places harder than others and the recoveries have been longer and slower than others and that kind of economic pain uh, and the subsequent inequality and inability of governments to get a handle on it and, and kind of build back, I think create a lot of space for right-wing populism uh, and demagoguery uh, and the kind of politicians you were just talking about who are able to use fear to blame others. And when you add on top of that mass migration flows that are often the results of war or you know the, the civil war in Syria or Afghanistan, et cetera, um, you find an easy enemy that you demagogue, that you blame for everything. And um, that's how these parties grow. And I think that you got to fight back, uh, but it can be very hard under these circumstances. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. 
You mentioned uh, the joys and sufferings of uh, having a sleepless six-month-old in the yeah. house. Uh, when you welcome a child into the particular America that you're welcoming that child into as you're fighting for things, what's the stuff that keeps you up at night about the future? Um, there was another mass shooting the other day. Uh, I couldn't even tell you which one it was because there are so many of them. Uh, and it was the first time I turned to Hannah and said, I could imagine us living in London or somewhere else uh, so that we don't have to deal with this shit. That's what changes with a child, correct? Because there are all sorts of fears about climate change and democracy crumbling, but uh, guns and the randomness of it when you care about something, I'm imagining the way you've you've never cared before, correct? Uh, yeah. I mean, suddenly you're kind of, all the cliches are true. Your, your heart is on your sleeve. Uh, you're not in control anymore of, you know, your own, uh, your own soul. Um, you know, and it's, it's two things. It's the randomness of gun violence and the trend of uh, these shootings happening in schools, including elementary schools, and also just the absurd reality that the United States has more guns per capita than any other country. I think the second biggest is Yemen, which has been engulfed in a civil war for the last, you know, however many years, um, and the inability or refusal of the Republican Party to just do some common sense things to get machine guns off the street. I mean, it's it's um, it's maddening. How have you been changed by the birth of your daughter? Other beyond the ways that you're articulating here. Uh, before we had uh, our daughter, before we had uh, Lizette, I was not like a big baby guy. You know, you have a friend who had a baby. They'd be like, oh, you want to hold him? You want to hold her? I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> They're kind of scary. Like a, holding a three-month-old, they just feel, you feel like you're going to drop them. Um, that has completely changed for me. Uh, I love every second with her. I, you know, I want to be around her all the time. Um, I think about the future in different ways than I ever did before. It's also true that... Um, it's a, it was it was we had a hard time having kids uh we went through several miscarriages we actually had uh, another daughter who was still born at six months and just sort of like the most uh devastating um thing you could imagine and so it has made me being with her makes me more present and i think more self-aware of what a gift she is and how many parents of 20 year olds probably think what I would give for another day with this son or daughter uh, as a six month old where, you know, I could just hold her in my arms and she can't argue with me <laughs> or or tell me I suck or whatever it is we do once we're teenagers. You have talked very publicly, vulnerably about those difficulties why do that uh, roy bellamy on our show decided that he needed to do that for some healing i don't think people understand uh, i don't think people talk enough about or understand the difficulties you're talking about there why did you decide to share that vulnerability with the internet yeah you know i, I mean so hannah and i went through several miscarriages we did not talk about those publicly but privately they were all consuming um, and, uh, it impacted every, every night we went to bed, every conversation we had every morning we woke up, it was just like sadness everywhere. And so I think for Hannah, you know, in particular, there was, I don't want to speak for her, for both of us, I think there was a sense of, um, 
embarrassment and shame and tragedy where for some reason you don't want to talk about these things or you feel like a failure or you blame yourself in some way and all of that is irrational and stupid but then when um you know we lost our daughter Margot at six months um people knew we were pregnant there was no hiding it there was no way to keep this a secret and i didn't want to because i just sort of couldn't walk around all day thinking about one thing uh and putting up a brave face and talking about another it was just not it was not an option anymore and i also think that miscarriage uh and trouble uh having children is such a common problem but for some reason people don't talk about it and i don't really understand why i think that makes it harder on everybody um it makes it this sort of private lonely tragedy rather than an opportunity to have empathy and share an experience with other people and we both just decided like we got it we, we just can't keep this to ourselves i don't think of you in many ways or your work as irrational and stupid so what is happening there that you are succumbing to irrational and stupid comparison ruins everything in life you know i think you you feel like it's your job to especially for women this is particularly hard for women i think that your job is to have a baby to raise a child um and you feel like a failure if you have not i know this is how hannah felt and on top of that you you know once you start to focus on these things or, or want to have a kid it's all you see everywhere is friends your peers your coworkers, instagram you know people with their new babies uh and you compare yourself to them and it makes you feel worse uh and i so i think that is where the irrationality and stupidity of it all comes from the sort of the the self-blame um and um criticism for something that's really out of our control and how much joy is there now as a family that uh it would appear i don't think i have this wrong that uh daddy has arrived at his wildest dreams and now from a happier place can take care of a family a company and a wife because what you're articulating you don't need to necessarily care about if you're building a cold company what you're articulating about the managing of people is that you crooked media simply will not be a caring company if you personally don't care about the people that you're managing yeah i mean it, it you know it's um it's an incredible place with incredible people who are well-meaning who care about a mission who want to be part of something that hopefully in even just a small way can chip away at some of the problems this country has and make things a little better can you know stand up for communities that are um that are getting treated like punching bags uh by the far right um, and to try to push the Democratic Party to do more, to help more people, uh, to win more elections and and do the right thing. And so we are incredibly proud of, of this place, of the team uh, that works here, of the work we do. And, um, you know, it's uh, it, it can feel like a, a family, you know, in the office, too. What a joy, though, right? To feel like you're in the middle of a fight, but also that you're laughing the entire time, right? You're not. There are also tears and frustrations and everything else, but I imagine that the joys of laughing about where you've arrived with your friends, uh, my guess is that it's a combination of overwhelming and breathtaking. 
Uh, yes, it is. I mean, it, like sometimes the things feel insurmountable, right? I mean, like what what can we a little podcast company in LA do to, you know, change the course of an election or or change the way the political system works or you know some of the entrenched interests that are run things? But um, it's enormously fun and rewarding to be part of a scrappy small team that's going to work like hell to uh to see what they can do listen and subscribe to pod save the world new episodes every wednesday and pod save america new episodes tuesday and thursday wherever it is you get your podcast can you explain to the uninitiated again just the difference between pod save the world and pod save america because pod save america as far as i can tell represents the growth of your learning yeah, Positive America is uh, twice a week, uh, the biggest stories in politics uh, from a progressive point of view. Positive the World is me and a guy named Ben Rhodes, who is my coworker. Uh, we shared an office at the White House, actually, uh, who worked on foreign policy. And we basically try to summarize the biggest stories happening in the world uh, once a week in one episode and then talk to politi- uh, politicians, activists, you know, global leaders, journalists to help people understand things that are happening outside of America. Uh, I love doing it. Um, it's really the highlight of my week. Thank you, sir. I hope I didn't get too, I, I didn't hope I didn't make you too uncomfortable. Not at all. Pressing in there on the, on the family stuff. No, 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 no. I, it's uh listen, it's not easy, but it's good, you know, and uh, it had happened. I, pre- I, I actually, it, when shitty things happen, I think people sometimes uh, feel bad about raising it, but, secretly everyone wants to talk about these things right because i don't i've not stopped thinking about her think about her every day uh and so it's nice to be able to kind of honor that memory by talking about it i appreciate you doing it here sir thank you thanks dan thank you so much for having me on i really appreciate it my team is one win away and i'll tell you exactly what i'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series i'm going to go to my fridge and i'm going to get myself an ice cold can of miller light a lot's changed over the years but one thing that hasn't the great taste of miller light Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.